Turn with me to the 19th chapter of John. If you need a Bible this morning, just raise your hand. We'll try to share a copy of God's Word with you that we keep in the back just for such a purpose. And there is a little note page in your bulletin. Grab that if you wouldn't mind, and, uh, and we'll be referring to that along the way. Seven words, unless you are joining us today maybe for the very first time, which is a cool thought for us if that is true, and you are here for the very first time. We're so glad that you are. But unless you are joining us for the very first time, you would know that Seven Words is the title that we have assigned to a series that we have given ourselves to for these seven weeks leading up to Easter, to Resurrection Sunday, which is now, as we've already mentioned, two weeks away. Seven Words refers to the seven incredible statements that Jesus makes while he hangs from the cross, securing salvation for us by his death and his resurrection. And so far, these mornings have allowed us to hear, up to this moment, the words of forgiveness as Jesus prays those as he is being crucified. He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. We've heard words of salvation as Jesus says to a dying thief, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise We've heard words of love and care as Jesus says to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son, and to a disciple who's standing by, Here is your mother. And we have heard the most horrific words that have ever been spoken, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Words of never to be repeated again, anguish, as Jesus actually becomes sin for us. Saying those words as we talked about that so that you and I would never, ever have to say those words. And then last time we were together, last Sunday, words of great suffering, as Jesus said through parched lips, I am thirsty. Words of forgiveness, words of salvation, love, anguish, suffering. Today we come to the next, to the last of Jesus' cross words, and here we get to turn a corner. Because today we get to share words of triumph, words of victory. As Jesus says, what? It is finished. Yes, we just sang that together. Let's pray. And we do this, Father. We come before you as we do on these Sunday mornings when we step into your word. And we just invite you by your spirit to join us. We do not want to get out in front of you. We do not want to inject our own thoughts into this moment. This is your time. These are your words, and so we invite you, Holy Spirit, to bring them to life for us. We don't want to just be hearers of your word. We want to be doers of it. We want to live in the truth that you share. So make it possible for us. We yield to you now, and all God's people say, amen, amen and amen. All right, well, I'm, I'm just curious. Do any of you have any projects around your house that you have been meaning to get to but you just haven't gotten to them yet. Yeah, you got a, got, a, <laughs> got a few of those. Yeah, I don't want to put anybody on the spot, but, but maybe as a way to kickstart you to do whatever that is that you just raised your hand about, what are some of the unfinished projects around your place? Cleaning out that shed. Okay, been there dogging you for a while, Chris. Yeah. Well, yeah, what else? Unfinished projects? got to build a chicken coop okay and then the chickens follow all right what else 
Organize, never done, right? Never done. Oh, perhaps it's uh, refinishing an old dresser. Maybe it's painting that room that really needs painting, completing a stitchery project, repairing the storage shed, or restoring an old car. Uh, first service, somebody came at the end of the service and pulled out their iPhone and said, here's my unfinished project, and showed me their, the car that they're working on. Yeah. We all have our to-do list, right? But it is oftentimes more accurate to call it our don't-do list. Unfinished stuff. And if we have unfinished work, unfinished projects, stuff hanging around that needs to be completed, you know, we're not alone. We were all raising our hands in this moment. We can all relate. And in fact, we're actually in some pretty good company if we have some unfinished projects. This is admittedly a bit of trivia, but Maybe you can pull it out sometime and, and, and share it with somebody. Did you know that the, the, the great granite sculpture in South Dakota depicting the heads of the four American presidents, Mount Rushmore, did you know that that is actually an unfinished project? Did you know that? It's true. One of the world's greatest stone carvings is not finished, and it probably never will be finished. And the reason for that is because the Danish sculptor who conceived of Mount Rushmore, Gutzon Borglum, had originally planned that these four figures would be depicted down to their waist. Not just their heads, but all the way down to their waist. And that would take a lot of work, wouldn't it? So unfinished projects there. Did you know Michelangelo, considered to be one of the greatest artists of all time, would often begin a project only to abandon it in a fit of rage? It's true. Amazingly, he died with more unfinished artwork than finished projects. So we're in pretty good company if we have some unfinished stuff. Thinking about death, when people die at a young age, they very often leave behind an unfinished project or a plan or a dream. In 10 short years, Alexander the Great conquered Greece, Persia, Asia Minor, Egypt, Mesopotamia, Babylon, India. One wonders what might have happened if he had lived to be an old man. We'll never know. He died at the age of 33. But he had an unfinished empire to build. Jesus also died at roughly the age of 33. And he only actively ministered for about three years, not very long. And yet in that short period of time, he literally changed the world forever, didn't he? He changed your life. He changed my life. But here's the best part about the story of Jesus. He finished everything that he started. Everything. Do you believe that? He completed every work, accomplished all that he had ever planned to do while he was on the earth. Most of us, we have un unfinished projects, half-accomplished work, but not Jesus. For him, it is all finished. And we say amen to that truth. We just sang that truth. In John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus will say, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. In John chapter 5, verse 36, Jesus says, the very work that the Father has given me to finish 
and which I am doing testifies that the Father has sent me. And the night before Jesus was crucified, he prayed an extraordinary prayer. It's all of John chapter 17. We've hung out there in the past, but here's how this prayer begins. John 17, verse 4. I glorified you, Father, on earth by what? By finishing the work that you gave me to do. Now, this is an amazing statement. There was certainly many more sick people who could have been healed by Jesus, more miracles that could have been performed by him, and more teaching that he could have have presented. There was lots to do that way, but the work Jesus is thinking about here is the securing of salvation for sinners through his death on the cross and his resurrection. And here he says in a prayer to God that the work is already done. As if nothing has been left undone, yet he has yet to go to the cross. And he says, I have finished the work. And the reason he's able to say that is because he is so in control of his life and of his death that he can pray in the past tense. It's going to happen. I glorified you, Father, on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Now, your Bible is already open to John 19. This is where we hear the sixth shout from our Savior, this cry from the cross. It follows quickly after, I thirst, and it comes immediately before the last of the seven statements, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, which we'll look at, Lord willing, next time. These final three crossword statements were most likely uttered in the last minute of Jesus' earthly life. I thirst, it is finished, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We've been in some heavy places these past few weeks, from the desolation of the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, to this this terrible lament of I thirst last week. But today, today we get words of triumph. It is finished, exclamation point. Look again, would you, at your Bible, verse 28, Brandon read these words, but let's read them one more time. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Church family, look closely at the words, it is finished. There on your Bible page, look closely. Is Jesus saying with a sigh here, my life is over. It's done. It comes to its end. It's finished. Is that how Jesus says these words? Does this word come into your mind and into your heart with a tone of defeat, as if Jesus' death here was an unexpected tragedy, a cruel twist of fate. Does it come to you that way? Are these words spoken as a, as a, 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 a with a moan kind of finally, it's over, or or perhaps with a sense of relief that death is being welcomed? It's finished. No more suffering. Is that how you hear these words? 
I don't think so. You're saying no. You know, we have from the other gospel accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that Jesus says these final three statements, I thirst, it is finished, and Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. These words were spoken really with a shout. These words were spoken in a loud voice. And so when Jesus says, it is finished, it wasn't a whimper that came from the defeated. It's the cry of the conqueror. It's a cry of victory. It's a, it's a shout of triumph. And even more revealing that that is the truth is the what Jesus actually says. He doesn't say, I am finished, does he? Is that important that we note that? This is it. I'm finished. I'm done. He doesn't say that. He says what? It is finished. It is finished. It, the work my father gave me to do, it is finished. It's completed. It has been accomplished. Every plan laid down by my Father before the world began for the saving of sinners. Every reason for my leaving the glory of heaven and, and putting on the flesh of humanity. Every person that the Father, or purpose that the Father had for me in, in, in being on this terrible cross, all of it is now accomplished. The work is finished. It is done. And we say, Amen, that that is true. I don't know if your life ever permits you the opportunity for some uninterrupted contemplation. If you're a young mom or dad, you're saying, what in the world is that, right? What is uninterrupted contemplation? But, but if your life afforded you that luxury and you pondered the question, what is the greatest word that has ever been spoken by anyone in the history of the world? I wonder where your contemplative reflecting might take you. You would perhaps think of a lot of different words, great words that have been spoken. But if I could, I'd like to put before you for your consideration the idea that quite possibly the single greatest word ever spoken in all of human history is one word, the Greek word, tetelestai. To tell us die. It's written there on your note page, big and bold, front and center, to stress its, its potential greatness. And maybe as you see it on that note page, it will be burned into your mind's eye. This is the actual word that Jesus would have shouted at about 3 o'clock on that Friday afternoon that is shrouded in a supernatural darkness as he's hanging on the cross. He would have cried out this word, Tetelestai. For we who know Jesus as Lord and Savior, it is an extraordinary word, but I'm not sure we realize how extraordinary it is. Infused with the love of God for sinners, could it be that this is the greatest word ever uttered by the greatest person who ever lived? Tetelestai? The famous British preacher Charles Spurgeon said that this one word would need all the other words that have ever been spoken to explain it. I think Spurgeon was tipping his own hand as to where he would rank 
to telestai on his list of great words. It would have been at the top. And I'm going to leave you to decide if it should be the greatest word ever uttered in the history of the world or not. But we'll spend some time with it, and, and then that may help you decide where you're going to put this word in your ranking. But I can tell you that when Jesus said to telestai, it terrified hell. It sent a thrill racing through heaven, and it makes all the difference in where you and I will spend eternity. That's how big this word is. This is how important it is. For just a few moments, let's peel back the layers of this word, attempt to enter into Jesus' thinking as he shouted it, and then, and, and then you decide where Tetelestai falls on your list of great words. Let me begin with the, the briefest of grammar lessons for us because, well, it'll be brief because I didn't do well in grammar in school, so it'll be brief. But it is important for all of us to know that this little word, this Greek word tetelestai, is a verb that Jesus spoke from the cross using the perfect tense. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, when we say something in the past tense, we're saying that something happened but what has happened may not remain that way forever. It could change. We talk about something in the past tense. We acknowledge it happened, but it could change. The perfect tense is different, very different. This happened, and it is still in effect today. And that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is literally saying, I finished something and it is going to continue to be finished in the future. It is going to stay the same. We could say it this way. All has been done that can be done. Nothing more needs to ever be done. It is finished. Perfect tense. That's what Jesus was saying. And everybody on Calvary Hill that afternoon understood that this is what Jesus was saying. Not I, but it is finished. All has been done that can be done. Nothing needs to be done ever again. Wow. This word often shows up uh, in many different places in the first century of Jesus' day when a shepherd had a lamb born to his flock that was without blemish or defect. He would look at that lamb and he would say, Tetelestai. You can't improve on that. That is the perfect lamb. Or when a carpenter would finish his piece of furniture, he would step back from that and he would say, Tetelestai, can't make it better than that. It's finished. An artist might, after putting his last brushstroke to his painting, step back and pronounce, Tetelestai, finished, nothing more to make it better. And a servant would return to his master after faithfully finishing a job and he would say to his master, Tetelestai, no more to do here, Master. All done. Finished. Perhaps the most important place where this word commonly would be found was in the banking circles, though, of Jesus' day. When a person would fully pay off the debt that they owed, the banker would hand that person a receipt with the word tetelestai printed on it. Paid in full. Nothing more owed. Your debt is finished. Archaeology has unearthed many documents with the word tetelestai 
written across the ledger. It's finished. That debt is done. Jesus said, not I, but it is finished. All has been done that can be done. Nothing more is needed or will ever be needed to secure our salvation. It's done. Paid in full. That's what Jesus is saying as he hangs between heaven and earth for you and me. I'm glad to know that today, that it is finished. How about you? You glad to know that? Well, let's press into this word just a little bit more by asking, when Jesus says it is finished, what was he thinking? What was he thinking? What is the it in our Savior's mind at this moment? It is finished. Of course, we can never fully or completely gain the, the answer to such a question because we don't have the mind of God. But, but drawing upon other parts of the Bible, we can, I think, land uh, into some pretty solid places and, and, and deduce what Jesus might have been thinking. So on your note page, we're going to look into four different, in four different directions. When Jesus says, to tell us die, we know that his suffering is finally at an end, don't we? To Telestai. It is finished. More than 750 years before Jesus was born, God wanted everybody to know what his son would experience when he came to be Savior to the world. So through the prophet Isaiah, God revealed that Jesus would face intense suffering during his life. He wanted us to know that. Isaiah 53.3 says this, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and what? Familiar with suffering. Well acquainted with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And if you know the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, you know how it goes on and, and God says that Jesus will be stricken and be smitten and afflicted and he'll be pierced and crushed and oppressed and led like a lamb to the slaughter. In other words, Jesus will literally be born to suffer. Of who else can that be said? Born to suffer. Jesus came knowing that would be his story. And he came anyway. What a gracious, loving Jesus we have. In the Gospels, we see Jesus regularly reminding his closest followers that before there could be the glory of the resurrection, there would be much suffering. Luke 9, verse 22, there on your note page, Jesus says, The Son of Man must what? Suffer many things. And be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. And he must be killed on the third day. And on the third day be raised to life. We read those words and we know that for Jesus the cross was never just some unforeseen development. Some kind of an accident. It wasn't a secret either. Jesus is saying this is what's going to happen. He told his followers the truth. He's not going to die as a martyr. He dies as, a, as the perfect sacrifice. He turned his face toward Jerusalem. He looked the cross straight on. And he suffered and he died on purpose. He says, I came to suffer. You know, early in this series, we detailed the excruciating physical trauma that Jesus experienced as part of his crucifixion, 
so we won't be going over that ground again here. But, but if you recall, the, the physical trauma was not the worst part of it for Jesus. When Jesus cried out the fourth word, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What was Jesus crying? He was crying out, God, you've, you've forsaken me in this moment that I have become sin for the world. I'm not just taking it on myself. I am being made sin for the world. God the Father turned his back on his son. The, the, the sun stopped shining for three hours as the accumulated ugliness of the sin of the world was placed on Jesus and he became our sin. That was the worst part of his suffering. And now that cup of suffering that Jesus prayed about in the garden, well, it's been drained. There's not a drop left in that cup of suffering. The wages of sin have been paid in full to Telestai, and now the suffering is over. It is finished. So when Jesus says that, here in this moment. For sure, one of the things he is saying is that my suffering is at an end. And remember, it's the perfect tense, right? Perfect tense. It's in the past, and it'll stay that way. No more suffering for our Savior ever again. I'm glad that's true. He suffered enough. And then by this one word, Jesus was also saying, that all sacrifice is done. This is hugely important for you and me to understand, fellow Christian. If you, if you know the unfolding story in your Bible, you, you know that for 1,400 years before Jesus comes, God had created a special relationship between himself and one group of people. Who were they? The Hebrew people, right? Sure. And as part of how they were going to relate to him and worship him, God instituted a system of animal sacrifice. It sounds horrible to us, but it was, it was, it was for God, it was part of a, something much bigger. These sacrifices were for the purpose of, of symbolically covering over the sins of the people by the death and the shedding of the blood of an innocent animal. In 1,400 years, rivers of innocent animal blood had been poured out as a symbolic payment for sin amongst the Hebrew people. And I say symbolic because, again, all of that was just going to be a, a, a great living picture of what God would do through his son Jesus on the cross. So in the book of Leviticus, Old Testament, when was the last time you did your devotions there? In the book of Leviticus, God gave some very detailed instructions. Specifically, dedicated priests would take innocent animals and kill them, drain their blood in a basin, burn the carcass of the animal, and sprinkle the blood on the altar. There could be no unblemished animals, God said. They had to be without defect. And you have to know it was a, a very bloody scene as this happened day in and day out. A priest spent a good part of every day killing animals, splashing the blood on the altar. His job description involved slaughter, drain the blood, sprinkle the blood, burn the carcass. And he did this many times a day, day after day, week after week, month after month, and year after year. 
no matter how hard he tried to clean himself up after a day, he would go home with the smell of blood and burning flesh on his clothes. This was the priest's life. The whole Old Testament sacrificial system can be summarized in these words. Death, blood, burning. Death, blood, burning. And the work of the priest was never done because the sin of the people was repeated over and over and over again. God specifically told the priest, you will not sit down when you're on duty, symbolizing that their job was never finished. You can't serve. Each day brought new sins in people's lives, a fresh requirement of the death of an innocent animal, blood to pay for the sin committed. A priest who served perhaps 40 years would have killed tens of thousands of innocent animals. When he died, another priest took his place. When he died, another and another and another for 1,400 years. Now, fast forward to this Friday afternoon in John 19. On this hill outside the city of God where the great temple was, where animals were daily being slaughtered as they had been for centuries. Here on Calvary Hill, 1,400 years of symbolic sacrifice comes to an end forever with the words to tell us that. It is finished. Jesus is saying, I will be the once and for all perfect, sinless, innocent sacrifice for sin. After me, there will never be a need for another sacrifice. Here's how the Holy Spirit presents this to us in the New Testament. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Let me just invite you maybe even to close your eyes and listen as the writer shares this with us. He says, the law. That old sacrificial system was only a shadow of the good things that were coming, not the reality. For this reason, the sacrifices can never be repeated endlessly year after year, making those perfect who come to worship. If the sacrifices could do that, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sin. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. God knew this. He had always known this. Jesus knew this. So God sends his son Jesus to be the one last great sacrifice for your sin for my sin. And that's why we read the passages that we do there on your note page, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27. Listen to what we read there. He, that is Jesus, sacrificed for our sins. What are the next three words? Once for all, when he offered up himself. To die. it is finished. Once for all, never again. If you flip your note page over, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12 declares that Jesus entered, what are the next three words? Once for all into the holy place by means of his own blood, thus securing a what? An eternal redemption. Perfect tense, remember that? Never to be repeated again. 
and eternal redemption. And then check out this reference there on your note page. We're going to put it up on the screen as well. And we want to do that because we're going to read this one aloud together. Church family, if you wouldn't mind, let's do this one together. Hebrews 10, 10 and 12. We have been made holy by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Did you notice anything in that passage that caught your attention in particular? He sat down, right? You noticed it right away. He sat down. Why does Jesus sit down? Because it's done. It's finished. To tell us die. Jesus sits down. All those priests for 1,400 years were standing. They had to stand. Because the blood of an animal can never cover the sin in our lives. But because Jesus has shed his sinless blood in our place, that's the once and for all sacrifice that God receives. And it is finished. To tell us die. It's good to know that, isn't it? The Apostle Peter, drawing upon these great truths, will write these words under the inspiration of God's Spirit. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for us, for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Jesus is the last great sacrifice for sin. And he does this so that he can bring us to God. That's what Peter said. So he can bring us to God. That ushers us into something else that Jesus must have, have been thinking when he said, it is finished. The it would have also included thoughts about the, dece- the defeat of Satan. Because Satan doesn't want us to be brought to God, does he? No. His entire existence, as a matter of fact, is dedicated to keeping us from God and putting himself in God's place. Jesus died, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. So when Jesus shouts to tell us die, he is surely announcing, among other things, the defeat of Satan. Now, Satan still has power. But he is a vanquished foe. He may have thought that the cross was going to be his finest hour. His moment of victory. And yet it is anything but that. Jesus looking toward his cross says in John chapter 12 verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be what? Cast out. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Satan. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, makes it clear what Jesus was thinking as he hung on the cross. The reason the Son of God appeared was to do what? Destroy the works of the devil. Satan was expecting Jesus to say, I am finished. But what he got was, it is finished. And that meant, Satan, you are finished. Amen is right. Hebrews 2, 14 He, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Satan is defeated, but he's still a dangerous enemy. But he's on borrowed time. 
Have you ever heard the story of uh, a dad and his little girl who were traveling in the car? And, and while they were driving, the father noticed that a bee had flown in the window of the car. And, and normally this wouldn't be a big deal, but uh, his little girl was extremely allergic to a bee sting and potentially could die from one. And so it became instantly a very serious situation. And so as the bee was flying around in the car and then flying towards his daughter, the the father reached out his open hand. The bee landed on the palm of his hand, and the dad wrapped his hand around the bee. And the bee inside of the palm of his hand, of course, you know what he did, sunk his stinger deep into the, the hand of this dad. About a minute later, the dad opened up his hand, not having crushed the bee, and the bee flew off. Now, the little girl was petrified because the bee was now again loose in the car. But the father said, honey, you don't have to worry. You don't have to worry. That bee can't hurt you anymore. And he showed her the stinger that was stuck in his hand. He can buzz around, but he can't hurt you. And I think about that story because I think that's a perfect picture of what Jesus did at the cross. Jesus took the full force of the devil's fury, but Satan's power couldn't overcome the God-man. He took the sting for us. Colossians 2.15 says it this way, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, that's a reference to Satan, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Satan can buzz around, and he can cause us problems, but he has lost the war, hasn't he? To tell us die. It means Satan is defeated. And then the last thought there on your note page, it is finished. Well, that means beyond any shadow of a doubt that salvation is secure for you and me who believe in Jesus. Because of everything that Jesus has done and never needs to be done again, you and I are absolutely safe and secure in our salvation. We have full access to God the Father. Theologians talk about it as the finished work of Jesus. Nothing more needs to be done to telestai. It's incredibly comforting to have this word. I don't know if we think about this enough. I know I don't. Think about what it would be like, brother or sister, in Jesus this morning if this work, this finished work of Jesus was not finished. Think about that. What if there was some stray thread of the redemptive work of Jesus still hanging loose out there somewhere, undone? What if Jesus from the cross had not said, to tell us die, but rather had said, it's almost finished? What would that do for you today? I dare say you wouldn't even be here. I wouldn't be here if that's what Jesus had said. It's almost finished. Father, I've almost accomplished everything you've entrusted to me. What if he had said, mine is nearly a completed redemptive work. Into your hands I commit my spirit. <laughs> Why, that would be a horrible revelation. A nearly perfect work is still an incomplete work. Agreed? 
But Jesus says, it is finished. Perfect tense. We so take this truth for granted. We don't stop to think how incredibly precious it is to us. On your note page near the bottom, brothers and sisters, Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore now, right now, no condemnation, no sentence of punishment hanging over those who are in Christ Jesus. Why are we able to believe that? Because it's finished, right? To tell us die. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. Why is that true? It is finished. Now you're getting the flow. You know what's going to come next, right? John chapter 5, verse 24. You have present tense crossed over present tense from death to life through faith in Jesus Christ. How do you know that? It is finished. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. How do you know that? Because it's finished. It is finished. And fellow lover of Jesus, if Jesus' work of salvation, which was God the Father's plan from the beginning that he would die on the cross in the way that he did, if Jesus' work of salvation is finished, and God has accepted it as finished, how in the world can you or I possibly improve upon that work? How can we add anything to the finished work of Jesus? We can't. We can't add anything to it by our efforts, by our diligence, by our good deeds. But many Christians, many Christians do not understand this. They think that they have to do something to continue to to add to what Jesus has done so that God will be pleased and, and accept them. They don't know what it means to really live in the word, to tell us die. It is finished. All that you and I can ever do is settle in to salvation's glorious finishedness. Is that a word? Finishedness? It is now. To tell us die. The greatest single word ever spoken? Well, you will have to decide that for yourself, but I know where I stand on that word. If it were not for this word spoken by our Lord in the final minute of his earthly life there, then his suffering is meaningless. We're still in our sin, accountable for it. Satan's actually the victor, not Jesus. And our salvation is an empty hope and heaven's not our home. If it's not for this word. But because it is finished, Jesus will never suffer again. There'll never be a need for another sin sacrifice. Satan is on borrowed time. And because you trust Jesus alone, Heaven is your home. To tell us die. It 
is finished. And now, so am I. Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, what a glorious, glorious word you have given to us. When we read these passages in our Bibles, the account of the crucifixion, some of this stuff just, just we miss it. But Holy Spirit, thank you for bringing all of this out for us today. Thank you for reminding us of the suffering of our Savior. Thank you for the old way that is done completely now because Jesus once and for all has died. Thank you that Satan is not the victor and he is on borrowed time. And thank you that our salvation is secure. There is now, present tense, no condemnation for us who are in Jesus. We love you, Lord, for who you are and for what you've done. We love you for this word to tell us thy. There may be friends in our circle of relationships who don't understand this word yet. Help us. Help us to communicate the truth of it is finished with them. As you give us opportunity, we'll say thanks. It's been a sweet time with you and with each other. In Jesus' name, amen.